0: You've been loading up on things from Walmart.
1: Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards Card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. (laughs) Say what now? 5% 5 back. back. With what?
0: The Capital One Walmart Rewards Card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online, on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. The weekend of October 6th, I was in Cincinnati, hanging out at DweebCon, an event hosted by my friends at the History Dweebs podcast. While I was in town, I sat down with Dee, host of Death's Door, to record an episode with her. Death penalty cases aren't usually my thing, but this case? The circumstances surrounding those involved in it? It's a compelling story. One I think you will enjoy. Already Gone will return next week on October 22nd with a new episode discussing the 1991 disappearance of 23-year-old Bernice Gray.
1: Good evening, everyone. This is Dominique Mix, the co-host of Death's Door Podcast, a podcast that investigates some of the most haunting cases from America's death row. Today on Season 2, Episode 10, we're talking about the case of Frank Lee Smith. Today's episode is a bit different. I'm fortunate enough to be joined by Nina Instead, the host of Already Gone, in a live recording at DweebCon, which is an event for the History Dweebs podcast. Already Gone is a huge hit in the true crime podcasting world, so you're probably familiar with it. But if you aren't, Nina, why don't you tell people a bit about your show?
0: Already Gone is a true crime podcast focused on Michigan and the Great Lakes region. I recently celebrated my 100th episode, which was very exciting, and uh, I'm a big fan of History Dweebs. Thank you. I'm a big fan of the History Dweebs and of Dee's Death's Door podcast, and I'm excited to be here today.
1: Awesome. Well, we are so excited to have you. So as a reminder, before you begin, this podcast contains mature content and listener discretion is advised. So this case begins on April 14th, 1985 in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Dorothy McGriff was a nurse's aide and she returned home around 1130 p.m. after working a shift where her children, Chandra, who was eight, and Reginald, who was nine, were supposed to be safely sleeping. When she walked in, she saw a man jump out of her window, leaving her TV close to the window frame in an apparent attempt to steal it. Panicked, she ran to check on her children. Reginald was sound asleep, but Chandra was obviously not okay. She was covered in blood with part of her pajamas tied around her neck. A bloody rock was found nearby, She was unconscious, but still alive, and so she was rushed to the hospital. Chandra clung to life for nine days, but eventually she passed away from her injuries. Her medical reports and autopsy showed that she had been brutally raped, beaten with a rock, and strangled. That same night, 19-year-old Chiquita Lowe was borrowing her grandmother's car in order to go hang out with a friend. She was waved down by a man who was near a neighborhood park, and he asked her for 50 cents. She got a good look at the guy, who seemed really off, and she told him no and drove away. She drove back the same way about a half hour later, and there were police everywhere, and crowds had gathered outside. She asked around, and people told her that a little girl had been murdered. She was really shaken, and so she went home.
0: The next day, Chandra's mother, Dorothy, went to the police station in order to help with the investigation. At first, she told the police that she didn't know what the man looked like, and she wouldn't recognize his face, because she'd only seen him for a couple of seconds. Eventually, she gave the police a description, which was, medium build, heavy in the chest, lower haircut, black man, with dark skin, wearing jeans, a pair of brown suede shoes, an orange t-shirt with writing on the chest. Police canvassed the area and eventually spoke with Chiquita Lowe and Gerald Davis, who had both seen a strange man around Dorothy's house the night of Chandra's attack. Detective Richard Sheff of the Broward County Sheriff's Office requested they come down to the station in order to discuss the identity of this man. At the police request, Chiquita Lowe and Gerald Davis went to the sheriff's office to help produce a sketch, which they both agreed looked like the man they saw. Chiquita took a copy of the composite home and showed it to her family. On April 17th, they gave descriptions of the man and helped with this composite. Gerald described the man as maybe six feet tall, 160 or 170 pounds, muscular with a chubby stomach, with a tacky beard and unkempt hair. He had a noticeably droopy eye, and he was not wearing glasses. He didn't have any noticeable scars. Davis went on to say that he really didn't get a good look at the guy because the guy seemed off and he didn't want to be bothered by him, so he didn't pay him any mind. He also told the police that the streetlights were out and that he never looked at the man directly. He gave a few descriptions that varied and kept explaining that it was dark out and he just didn't get a good look at the guy. He also told police that nothing about the man stuck out and he had no idea if he would even recognize him in person. Chiquita described the man similarly. She said he was muscular, wearing a white or white and red striped shirt, had a droopy eye, no glasses, and a scar on his face. Once the composite drawing was complete, it was shown to Dorothy, and she strongly agreed that it looked like the man, although she was not able to be part of creating the composite drawing because she insisted to police that she never saw the man's face. A day after Chiquita
1: helped create the composite sketch, a man knocked on their door, trying to sell a television that he was wheeling around in a shopping cart. Chiquita was asleep, but her family members that opened the door saw him and immediately said that they weren't interested in the the TV, but they looked at the composite drawing and started screaming for Chiquita. She looked out the window and saw the man walking away. Her family kept telling her that this was the man in the drawing, and so Chiquita called the police. Frankly Smith was arrested for Chandra's murder that day. Now, it's unclear whether or not he was even seen with a shopping cart or television, as there are reports that he was arrested outside of his home. But Chiquita was told that he was arrested a few blocks down trying to sell the same television.
0: So, before we go any further, I want to explain Frank Lee Smith's life and the reason that police were so insistent that he was the one to have killed Chandra Frank was born July 20, 1947. His mother, Ruby, was 14 when he was born, and he was the second of three children. They were sharecroppers, and they lived in destitute poverty. Frank's father was shot and killed by police shortly after his birth, and his mother, who suffered from mental health issues and alcoholism, was a single mother as a teenager. Ruby worked hard, but emotionally she spiraled into a deep depression. It was 1947, and she's a single black woman in the Jim Crow era. She had no options and was looked down upon by just about everyone. Now, when Frank was three years old, he suffered a very severe head injury, and he was lucky to survive this injury. Ruby was holding him while she was drinking at a bar, and a fight broke out. Someone threw a bottle, and it hit Frank and split his head open so severely that brain tissue was exposed. This was the first of two severe head traumas that left Frank with significant brain damage that was never treated. Ruby decided to move from Georgia to Fort Lauderdale with her children, and when she arrived in Florida, she turned to prostitution to help support her family. She would leave the house for days at a time and bring home random men, some of whom were very unsafe to be around. By the time Frank was seven, he was placed in foster care. He had special needs, but was never placed in a home with someone who was able to give him the care that he needed. After three years in foster care, he went to live with his grandmother, but she offered very little love or supervision, and the living conditions were virtually intolerable. Frank spent more and more time on the streets, with no adults wondering where he was. All of Frank's problems came to a head when he was 13
1: years old. He was at a school football game and got into a fight with a 15-year-old after demanding that the kid give him his money. The kid refused to hand over anything to Frank, and the two got into a fight. Frank ended up stabbing him, and he was convicted of manslaughter and sent to the Florida School for Boys in Okeechobee. Now, this school may ring a bell for you because in 2015, an investigation into the school revealed that the boys sent there were brutally abused, sexually assaulted, and sometimes even murdered. If boys tried to run away, they were often beaten to death. Boys' bodies were found recently when cadaver dogs searched the property of this school, which has long since been shut down. Frank himself suffered from both severe physical and sexual abuse when he was at the school. When he was released, he was sent back to live with his grandmother and continued to cycle through the juvenile detention system, where he was never treated for any of his psychological or emotional issues. When he was 15, he was severely beaten with a blackjack, which is similar to a billy club, at the base of his neck, causing more irreparable brain damage. This was the second of his head traumas. Tragedy also struck during Frank's childhood. His mother, Ruby, was found dead, floating in a lake in a nearby town. It was determined that she had been raped and murdered, and her killer was never caught. Her murder really wasn't investigated because, as is common with sex workers, police just didn't believe that they should put the resources into trying to figure out who murdered her.
0: By the time Frank was 18, he was broken. He was wandering the streets, just trying to get by. His older brother, Reuben, took advantage of Frank's diminished mental state and convinced him to take part in a robbery. The robbery went horribly wrong, and Frank ended up shooting the store owner of the shop they were robbing. He was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. When he arrived at the prison, this is when the severity of his brain damage and mental illness was discovered. In addition to severe brain damage caused by two head traumas, Frank was profoundly depressed and suffered from severe schizophrenia. He was also almost completely blind Although those issues were marginally treated while he was in prison, he was paroled in 1981 after serving 15 years, and no aftercare was offered to him. Still, Frank decided he was never going back to prison, and from 1981 on, he was never involved in any legal trouble. When he was arrested in 1985, he adamantly denied having anything to do with Chandra's murder— but because he'd been involved in two murders starting at such a young age, and because he so closely resembled the composite drawing, police were sure that they had the right man. Once he was arrested, Gerald, Chiquita, and Dorothy were all shown photo lineups. See, the police were familiar with Frank. He had two previous homicide convictions, and they were sure he was the man that committed this murder. Chiquita was shown two photo lineups and told the police she was unsure of whether the man was in the lineups. At this point, the police decided they needed to help her, so they lied. They pointed to Frank's picture and said, that's who Dorothy and Gerald picked out of the lineups. Does he look like the right guy to you? And at that point, Chiquita relented and said yes. Frankly, Smith was the man that she saw. Dorothy had also been shown a lineup and she said she didn't feel comfortable identifying the person because she didn't get a good look at him. This was not what the police wanted to hear either. Now, keep in mind, this woman's daughter has just been murdered. The police believe they knew exactly who had done it and they wanted justice for her daughter. So they showed her lineups and hinted to her who they knew the killer to be. She eventually picked Frankly Smith out of these lineups. Not to jump ahead, but one thing that is important to know is that at the trial, Dorothy testified that she was able to identify Frankly Smith by his shoulders. But his shoulders were not visible in the lineup photos.
1: Gerald was also
0: shown the photo lineups, but after multiple
1: attempts at getting him to identify someone, He kept telling the police that he didn't know what the guy looked like and that he didn't feel comfortable identifying someone. Now, keep in mind, the man that Chiquita and Gerald were identifying was a man that they had seen near Dorothy's house approximately 30 minutes before Dorothy discovered her daughter. This wasn't a man that they saw committing a crime or in possession of a weapon or with blood on his shirt. He was just a man in proximity to the crime scene, who seemed a little off to both of them. But again, the police were very sure that this man was the killer, and that it was also Frank Lee Smith. Gerald agreed to an in-person lineup in order to see if he could pick out the man that he had seen. They brought six men in, Frank being one of them. Gerald hesitantly identified Frank, but then explained to Detective chef that he was not comfortable with the lineup because none of these men looked like they were as big as the guy he had seen that night. Detective chef reassured him that all of the men were between six foot and six foot one, which is why they tended to look smaller than the man that night. It was because the They all looked about the same size, and just, it was a matter of visual trickery. After this reassurance, Gerald identified Frank as the man that he had seen. Now, here's the truth. The police picked three men that were between 13 and 17 years younger than Frank, and also picked a man who was 5'9", and a man who was 5'10", and they put Frank in between these two people. Now, this may not seem like a huge deal, but here's the problem with this. Eyewitness identification is one of the most trusted sources of evidence, and it's also involved in 70% of the original trials where someone is eventually exonerated by DNA evidence. So it's highly problematic. And in order to help fix the issues with this, The National Academy of Sciences has given guidelines in order to make photo lineups, which are the only type that they suggest using, more accurate. These guidelines are having a double-blind procedure, which basically means that the officer who's administering the lineup doesn't have any idea who the suspect is or if they're even included in the photographs. The next is having six pictures, And showing those pictures to the person one at a time, instead of letting the person compare all of the photos. Now, this is because unconsciously, first of all, you want to help the police. You want to help them solve a case. And so what can easily happen is that when you're looking at six pictures, you pick out the person who is most similar to the person that you saw. And the third recommendation that they made is to let the person know that the suspect may not be included in the photographs at all and that not identifying somebody could be just as helpful to the investigation as identifying somebody because they may not have the right person. And so, in other words, they could help the police continue their investigation and find the right person. Now, obviously, none of this happened in these lineups.
0: Frank was also interrogated by police. So, as many of you probably know, but some of you may not know, police are allowed to lie to a suspect in order to elicit a confession or other information that the suspect may know. This is actually a very common interrogation technique. Frank had the had an IQ of about sixty-seven, and he was being interrogated by detectives who wanted him to confess to what he had done. They went after him and they used every tool in the book. Detective Chef explained to Frank that this murder had been committed in the presence of another child, a child who had been carried into another room by the person that murdered Chandra. Chef said to Frank, "Look, you know." I don't know whether you did this or not, but I want you to be aware of something. If you did this, I'm going to be able to find out because that little boy did not sleep through the incident. He saw the person who murdered his sister, and if that's you, he's going to be able to identify you. Detective Chef said Frank's response to this was, No way that kid could have seen me. It was too dark. And detectives responded, Oh, really? And Frank said, Yeah, the lights were out. So, listeners, the problem is no recordings, no notes, and no transcripts were ever taken of this interrogation. Frank consistently denied having ever made that statement. But Frank was indicted for first-degree murder, sexual battery, and burglary on May 9th, 1985. His trial began in January of 1986.
1: Because the police had no physical evidence to submit to the jury at trial, they relied heavily on the eyewitness identifications of Frank Lee Smith as the man that Dorothy had seen in her home and as the man that Chiquita and Gerald had seen around her home that evening. Dorothy testified that Frank was the man she saw in her home, but her testimony really crumbled on cross-examination. When asked, she admitted that she never got a good look at the man's face, that she couldn't describe him, and that the lighting was dark from the man's shoulders up. She said she could identify Frank, but only by his shoulders, which, again, were not visible in the pictures that she was shown at the police station. Gerald Davis also testified and was clearly reluctant when he identified Frank as the man he had seen on the evening of Chandra's murder. He testified that he had told the police that he didn't remember what the man looked like and that he didn't believe the man had any scars on his face, but the police had told him that the man who did it had a facial scar, so he went with it. He said the man had a droopy eye and wild looking hair and a beard, but that he didn't see the man in the photo lineup or feel comfortable identifying anyone in the photo lineup and was still uneasy about his identification during the in-person lineup.
0: This left Chiquita as the state's main witness. What wasn't known at the time was the unbelievable amount of pressure she was under. The police told her that Frank was a child rapist and a murderer, and Chiquita was the only person who could make sure he was never free to do this again. Now, keep in mind, Chiquita is 19 years old at the time of the trial. She testified that Frank was the man she'd seen that night, and that she'd gotten a good look at him. What no one knew is that when Chiquita walked into the courtroom, her heart sank. She looked at Frank, and she knew it was not the same man. He didn't have a droopy eye. He didn't have a muscular build like the man she'd seen. He was shorter and smaller in stature. He had a facial scar that the man she saw that night did not have. But she felt pressure from all sides, her community, her family, the police, the prosecutor. And so she was too afraid to change her story. She remained consistent that Frank was the man she'd seen that night. Detective Sheff also testified. He first noted that he'd managed to get Frank to confess to the crime, and this was admitted into evidence as an involuntary confession. Then he discussed the lineups that he showed to the three eyewitnesses, how they were sets of photographs, and how Chiquita had been shown two sets, one with Frank and one without. He said he had been personally involved with the eyewitness identifications and believed that they were all sound. The district attorney used
1: Chiquita's identification to bolster Gerald's, telling the jury that it didn't matter how unsure he was because he and Chiquita had seen the same man that night and Chiquita was sure that it was Frank. He also explained to the jury that Dorothy's eyewitness identification was sound because Frank had a, quote, distinctive upper body. Frank's attorney's trial strategy was to attack the credibility of the eyewitnesses and to call into question Frank's admission of guilt, considering that there was no record of it. However, this was not enough. There were three people that said that they had seen Frank near the scene of the crime, and according to detectives, Frank had admitted to committing this murder. After a five-day trial, the jury found Frank guilty on all counts. Frank's sentencing hearing was basically over before it had begun. The jury found five aggravating factors proven by the state beyond a reasonable doubt, and those included that the capital felony was committed by a person under sentence of imprisonment, and that was because he was still on parole while he was arrested. The second was that Frank was previously convicted of another capital felony or a felony involving the use or threat of violence to the person. Three, the capital felony was committed while Frank was engaged or was an accomplice to committing or attempting to commit a sexual battery and burglary with assault. Four, the capital felony was especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel, which, as we've gone over, is known as the hack ag. And five, the capital felony was committed in a cold, calculated, and premeditated manner without any pretense of moral or legal justification. Now, his relatives did testify for him during his sentencing hearing, but their testimony was actually very problematic. And that was because they testified about how the man they knew today was a man who would never commit a violent act. Frank's two previous homicides had been left out during trial. However, because of the way that sentencing hearings work and the evidence that's allowed to come into them, once they testified that he was not a violent person, they were able to bring in on cross that he had previously killed two other people. So Frank basically broke down and begged the jury to reconsider his guilt. He told them, quote, My mama was killed like this. How do you think I feel about a rapist? And beyond that, someone who raped a baby. But the reality was, Chandra had died a terrible death, one that no one, especially a child, deserves. And the jury was sure that Frank had killed her. So on May 2nd, 1986, in a unanimous recommendation by the jury that the judge agreed with, Frank was sentenced to die in Florida's electric chair.
0: So Chiquita, our 19-year-old eyewitness, left Frank's trial, and she went home, and she sobbed. She thought about Frank, and she thought about Chandra, and eventually she talked to her grandmother about it, and her grandmother told her that they had to prey on it. So she began to pray. And amidst those prayers, Frank started his appeals process. His 1987 direct appeal raised seven issues, but primarily focused on Frank's claim of innocence. He argued that there was insufficient evidence to support his convictions because the evidence was largely circumstantial, and that is not inconsistent with a reasonable hypothesis of innocence. Dominique, do you want to explain that a little bit? So the
1: test for this is whether there's substantial credible evidence that the jury could have determined excluded all reasonable hypotheses of innocence. So basically what this test comes down to and the issues behind it are you have to show that there is evidence that shows that there's legally no credible way for you to have committed this crime. And the reason that the bar for this is so high is because appellate judges are very strongly against putting themselves in the jury's shoes and deciding that the trial should have had a different outcome. And the root of this is the belief that the trial judge, the jury, and everyone involved was there at the time. And appellate judges are looking at it from hindsight. So this is why when virtually any new trial is won, it's won on a constitutional or procedural claim, not a finding that essentially the jury got it wrong. So based on that, the appellate judges found that there was enough evidence for Frank to have been convicted, and Frank lost his bid for a new trial on direct appeal. His execution was set for January 16, 1990, And in 1989, with less than 90 days before his execution, Frank was appointed attorneys to assist him with any post-conviction appeals. Those attorneys were Brett Strand, Marty McLean, and investigator Jeff Walsh.
0: Now, I want to go off script for just a minute because I don't recall hearing anything about his fingerprints, his biologicals. They didn't find... Uh, her blood on frankly Smith's clothes. They didn't find her tissue or his tissue under her fingernails. So they, the only evidence that they really had were these three air quote eyewitnesses. Correct. That is correct in terms
1: of what was submitted to the jury and this was problematic. They did find a bloody rock close to Chandra's body, and they did take a rape kit. So there was biological evidence, but investigators really weren't interested in pursuing it heavily. They focused more on the fact that they knew who had done it, and they were able to prove that with non-biological or non-forensic evidence. So part of the reason why it didn't exist was because the initial investigation was pretty shoddy and not much of it was collected. And so that's why there was such a heavy focus on these non-forensic pieces of evidence.
0: Now, the mid-80s to the late 80s, early 90s was really the infancy of using DNA evidence in trials. But leaving that aside... His post-conviction attorneys, when they received this case, they knew that there were problems. So they scrambled to file Frank's habeas petition and were successful in receiving a stay of execution. But more importantly, this is when the name Eddie Lee Mosley started to surface. Jeff Walsh was familiar with this part of Fort Lauderdale, and he knew what police knew, which was that there were over 250 unsolved sexual assaults and at least 15 unsolved murders with victims from age seven to adulthood. An unprecedented 150 of these sexual assaults occurred between 1971 and 1973. And remember, these are reported sexual assaults. Eddie Lee Mosley had been known by the Fort Lauderdale Police Department for over 15 years, In 1973, when all these sexual assaults are taking place, detectives drove around the neighborhood with the assault victims, seeing if they could find the man who assaulted them. This man had the same M.O. every time. He would drag someone into a vacant lot or a vacant home, rape them, and sometimes strangle them. So as the police are driving around with the victim, one woman saw Eddie and said, there's that son of a bitch now. Eddie was pushing a shopping cart full of items. He had a droopy eye, a limp. They arrested Eddie, and over 40 victims identified him as their rapist. In the end, he was only charged with three counts of sexual battery and was found innocent by reason of insanity. He would spend five years in a state institution, and the slew of sexual assaults in the area stopped. He was released in 1979, and within five months, four black women, the primary target of these murders, were found raped and strangled within walking distance of Eddie's home. It was at this time that Jeff Walsh went over Eddie Lee Mosley's police file, and when he pulled out a picture of him from the file, his stomach dropped. The man was a match to the composite drawing. His next step was to show this photo to Chiquita, he had a hard time finding her and didn't know how she was going to react to his visit. When he finally tracked her down and knocked on the door, she let him in and said, What took you so long? Where have you been? Jeff Walsh was taken aback and explained what he was doing. He showed her Eddie's photo. And Chiquita burst into tears. In an interview, she stated, quote, That picture... I seen the man like I seen him yesterday. I seen the droopy eye. I seen the look on his face. And it just really shook me up. It shook up. I was so afraid. When Jeff left that night, I closed down every window in my house and locked the doors. I was so afraid. Jeff explained that she looked both relieved that she got this off of her chest, but she was afraid that Frank would hate her. Shakita immediately signed an affidavit recanting her testimony and stating that she had identified the wrong man. Her affidavit stated, in part, that she told both police and the state's attorney that the man they had on trial was not the man she'd seen the night of the murder. Further, that when she saw a photo of Eddie Lee Mosley, she realized that this, this was the man she'd seen the night of the murder, not Frankly Smith." She was sorry that she wasn't more forceful with police and the attorney regarding her doubts about Frank Lee Smith. Chiquita Lowe wanted to recant her previous testimony to assist Frank Lee Smith and set the record straight about who she saw that night. In closing, she wrote, quote, I swear on my mother's grave that the man in the photo is the man I saw on the street that night when that little girl was raped and killed. I identified the wrong man in the courtroom. Mm-hmm.
1: Frank's attorneys immediately filed his habeas petition in 1990 just before his execution date asking for an evidentiary hearing based on this new evidence. They were denied and Frank's execution date stood. His attorneys immediately appealed and on appeal Frank finally got a win. The court looked at the evidence and ruled that there needed to be an evidentiary hearing in order to explore the newly discovered evidence, and they granted Frank a 60-day stay of execution in order for the court to do so. In the 1991 evidentiary hearing, which was held on March 7th, the judge ruled that Frank's attorneys could only present Chiquita's affidavit as evidence they would have to proffer the rest of the evidence they wanted to provide to the court. And so before we go on, I want to explain two things because I don't want to lose the audience in the land of legalese. The first is what an evidentiary hearing is. And this is basically a hearing that occurs when a court is considering evidence in order to make a legal decision. It's basically the court saying, I think you may have a valid issue on appeal, but I'm not sure. So I want to hear more from both sides. Most people think that you file an appeal and then the courts just hand down a decision, and that is what often happens. But this is basically a stop in between. It's when the courts say, okay, we've read your appeal, we want to hear more, and then we'll rule on it. The second is what proffering evidence is. To proffer evidence is to offer it into the record without the court considering it. It's a way of building your appellate record without the specific court that's hearing the evidence during the evidentiary hearing considering it when they make their ruling. And judges may make this decision to allow you to proffer evidence as opposed to offering it as evidence during the hearing for a variety of reasons. But what's important in Frank's case is the unbelievable amount of evidence that Frank's defense was only allowed to proffer instead of offering his testimony. And that included any corroborative evidence that showed that Eddie Lee Mosley was the man who committed this crime and that Frank was innocent. This evidence included a list of suspected mo- victims of Eddie Lee Mosley, newspaper articles regarding Eddie Lee Mosley, four psychological reports on Mosley from when he was evaluated for either trial or institutionalization, three depositions that were offered regarding Mosley's sexual assaults of various victims an involuntary hospitalization order, and multiple booking sheets from the Broward Sheriff's Office. It also included testimony regarding Frank Lee Smith's eyesight. And the reason that this was important was because the man that Chiquita and Gerald had seen that night was not wearing glasses, and the reality was Frank really couldn't even get around if he was not wearing his glasses, which were very thick and a prominent feature that you would have noticed. So obviously his appellate attorneys were frustrated because the appellate court was basically saying, we're not going to allow you to show that somebody else committed this crime. We're only going to allow you to show whether or not you have enough evidence to call into question Frank Lee
0: Smith's conviction. Chiquita was unwavering at the evidentiary hearing. She was clear in that she was absolutely sure that Eddie was the man she had seen. She reiterated everything in her affidavit and her emotions around feeling as if she had caused the conviction of an innocent man. She testified that she had only seen a picture of Frank in the lineups and that had she seen a photo of Eddie Lee Mosley, she would have immediately identified him. Contrary to his trial testimony, Detective Chef testified that he had shown Shakita, as well as Dorothy and Gerald, three lineups, and one had included Eddie Lee Mosley. Shakita vehemently denied that he was ever presented to her as a possible suspect, and she also denied that the third lineup ever occurred. On April 29th, 1991, Assistant District Attorney Paul Zacks left a message for Frank's attorney, asking him to return his call. When Smith called back, Zacks told him that he and the judge had discussed the case and that Zacks had been assigned to draft an order denying Frank relief. Basically, Frank had lost, and it was just a matter of time before they received the ruling. Zacks then faxed Smith a draft order and a timetable that he and the judge had worked out. Wait, so that seems weird. Is that okay? This was actually one of the most
1: bizarre parts of this incredibly bizarre case. This is commonly referred to as ex parte communications between a judge and one of the parties. And it is never, ever allowed. You just are very careful about your communications with a judge because all parties have a right to be present when any aspect of a trial or an appeal is being discussed. So the fact that the district attorney was actually asked to draft this opinion is unbelievably disconcerting. And so when Frank's attorneys received this call, they immediately filed a motion to disqualify the judge and asked the judge to recuse himself. And I want to point out that this was in 1991, and it would take over a year for the court to rule on whether or not there should be a new evidentiary hearing in this case because of these ex parte communications. And in a weird twist of fate, Frank actually ended up winning a new evidentiary hearing because of these communications. Unfortunately, it would take another six years before that evidentiary hearing would actually happen. In August of 1998, Frank's attorneys filed a petition asking for DNA testing of the evidence in Chandra's death. In addition to having this evidentiary hearing take place, And at this point, with advanced DNA testing available, there was a chance that they might actually be able to answer who had actually killed Chandra. A month later, the evidentiary hearing regarding Chiquita's affidavit finally did take place, and the judge denied both the motion for a new trial and the motion to test the DNA evidence. Frank's attorneys asked the judge to reconsider these rulings, But they also decided to go directly to the source. And this happens a lot in post-conviction appeals when there's a question of innocence. A lot of times, defense attorneys will go straight to a prosecutor's office and just say, if you're so sure that this person is guilty, let us pay to have the evidence tested. We'll make the results public. And sometimes they agree to it, and sometimes they insist on litigating it. In this case, after going back and forth, the district attorney's office and Frank's attorneys finally came to an agreement to have Chandra's rape kit tested for DNA, and everyone anxiously awaited the results. In November of 2000, the results came back, and after 14 years on death row, the results showed that Chandra had been raped and murdered by Eddie Lee Mosley not frankly smith now usually these moments are met with news broadcastings on hearings where judges finally vindicate someone who's been claiming innocence for years or often decades frankly smith had spent 14 years on death row and so he was certainly due for an emotional hearing and then that breath you take when you finally get out of prison but unfortunately, Frank Lee Smith never got to see the results of the DNA testing. He passed away on January 30, 2000, just 10 months prior to when the results would come in, at 52 years old, after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. He was officially exonerated by Florida on December 15, 2000. The investigator in his case who had fought so hard for him, Jeff Walsh, was the last person to see Frank alive. In an interview he stated, quote, it was, you know, it was terrible. It was just awful. He had lost a tremendous amount of weight. He was clearly in a lot of pain. He was strapped to a hospital gurney. Essentially he was naked and he just I mean, he was just in excruciating pain. I sat there and gave him water while I was with him. He was dehydrated and starving. And again, it just goes back to the truth of the matter, which is they just didn't care about him as a human being at all.
0: In what I will classify as one of the most callous moves possible, the Broward County Sheriff's Department, who allowed Frank to sit on death row and Eddie to terrorize the community for almost 20 years, issued a statement. And in their statement, they said, quote, Even if Frank were innocent of Chandra's murder, they never would have allowed him to leave prison alive. Their explanation was that when Frank Lee Smith was arrested, they found a knife on him, which violated his parole. Therefore, the letter said, if DNA testing had been conducted while Mr. Smith was still alive, it is possible he would have been moved off death row. However, he would have remained in prison. Frank's life and Frank's death were tragic, but the story doesn't end there. The destruction that Eddie Lee Mosley caused was virtually unrivaled. Jerry Frank Townsend was arrested on September 5th, 1979, and Mr. Townsend confessed to multiple rapes and murders. He had a very low IQ, with the mental capacity of a child. He was convicted of six murders and rape in 1980 and was sent to prison for life. During his trial, the Broward County sheriffs testified that Jerry led them to the bodies of victims and knew facts that only the killer could know. In 2009... DNA proved that he was an innocent man, and he won a $2 million settlement against the Broward Sheriff's Office, which alleged civil rights violations including fabricated evidence, concealing exculpatory evidence, tampering with witnesses, and coerced false confessions out of Townsend. The deaths of 10 women and children who were murdered after Townsend's wrongful arrest have been linked to Mosley by DNA testing, Or other evidence.
1: The Broward County Sheriff's Office was also involved in the wrongful conviction of Anthony Caravella, who spent 26 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. And this murder occurred on November 5th, 1983, when Ada Jankowski was raped and stabbed 29 times. Earlier that evening, she had been seen leaving a bar with Anthony Martinez. On December 28, 1983, Anthony Caravella, who was 15 at the time and had an IQ of 67, was questioned about this murder when he was arrested for failure to appear on an unrelated car theft charge. He ended up giving four different confessions, none of which contained the same or any factually relevant material. When he was 16, he was convicted of Ada's rape and murder and sentenced to life in prison. In 2009, DNA testing was done on the evidence, pointing to Anthony Martinez as the murderer and exonerating Caravella. Caravella's attorneys have maintained that he was beaten by police until he confessed and he eventually won a $7 million settlement for the misconduct that took place during the investigation. Frank's half-sister, his closest living relative, filed a suit against the Broward County Sheriff's Office. It ended up being settled for $340,000, and the reason it was settled for a much lower amount than the other two men was because the attorneys who were working on this case were worried about Frank as a posthumous witness and that was because he had two previous murders and he also wasn't available in order to testify so they were worried that it would be very hard to humanize him his sister said that she would use the money to pay off her brother's funeral costs purchase a proper headstone for him because his grave was marked with a sole red flag, and start an organization to help others who have been wrongfully convicted. So that's the case of Frank Lee Smith. Thank you again, Nina, for joining us. I hope you enjoyed co-hosting. I did. You can find information about the show, merchandise, where to connect with us on social media, and information on becoming a Patreon supporter or making a one-off PayPal donation at our website, www.deathstorepodcast.com. Most importantly, if you have thoughts, opinions, or feedback on this case, feel free to head over to our website or Facebook and send us a message. In the meantime, until next week, stay safe and hold your loved ones tight.
0: Mom! Delivery! You've been loading up on things from Walmart.
1: Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% 5 back. back!
0: With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards Card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart Online, on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A.